Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And today I'm talking to one of the most high profile and highly praised journalists of our time. That's Ronan Farrow of The New Yorker, who, as you know, shared the Pulitzer Prize for his work exposing Harvey Weinstein's abuses. This is a wide ranging conversation about his work, how he goes about doing it the limits of TV journalism compared to the investigations he does for The New Yorker now and a lot more. But first, we spent a bit of time talking about his most recent piece for the magazine about the very big and very worrisome industry dedicated to hacking your cell phone. This is not strictly a media topic, but it is one that's relevant to anyone who uses a phone, and that's you, and you're probably using your phone right now at this very moment. And also, since we're here, this week I wrote about Netflix and its stunning about face on ads as in it's going to have an ad-supported version of Netflix, even though Netflix has spent us years telling us that Netflix is a better product because it doesn't have ads. And about what that turnaround tells you about the state of streaming in general and why streaming TV ads remain surprisingly crummy. So you could go read that on Vox.com. It's free, just like this podcast. Okay, here's me and Ronan Farrow. Welcome, Ronan. Hi, Peter. Good to talk to you. It's been a while. It's been a while. I can't. I think the only other time I've talked to you, you were an MSNBC host, and I was probably beaming in to talk about Netflix. No, I feel like I've seen for you. Sure, a lot. we had recode conversations around the Weinstein stuff. Maybe, maybe we only talked not like publicly. It's Is that possible, possible that happened. Okay. I saw you. Okay. I saw you receive an award once at a fancy luncheon with uh, well, Kara Swisher and nice Walt Mossberg. <laughs> yeah. So now that we're done, well, love Kara. Memory laning. Um, she's great. Um, I wanted to have you on to talk about your career, which is really interesting, but also a, a piece that came out in The New Yorker last month, and it's been a busy news cycle. It's a busy year, so not all of you may have seen it. I wanted to flag it for folks. It's called How Democracies Spy on Their Citizens. It's a deep dive into NSO, the Israeli tech firm that some of you may have heard about, maybe you've heard about their product, uh, Pegasus. And Ronan's reporting will terrify you the next time you pick up your cell phone. Ronan, how did, how did you get to this story? To begin with, well, it's been a bit of a long-standing beat, and it it flowed from my you know having dealt with some surveillance around some stories that I've done, which I've I've written and reported about, and and in being able to document and prove out, you were surveilled by in in the course of your reporting. I was surveilled. Sources of mine were surveilled, and I, I sort of started to see what a standard playbook this is. You know, if if you are tangling with people who have the resources, this is a thing that actually happens with some frequency. Um, you know, it happens in a context of litigation support from individuals. I'm talking about sort of surveillance writ large, not just spyware specifically. And it happens in the context of, you know, certain kinds of powerful people and interests confronting uh, reporting that they they find contentious or don't like. And it also happens, obviously, around the world under repressive regimes uh, that are confronting dissidents and journalists and activists who are an inconvenience. 
And that, of course, is the area of, of greatest concern because you also see a correlation between people getting surveilled and then people getting hurt and even dying. And I encountered this initially in the course of my reporting in the context of kind of old school human surveillance, right? Like I had people you know, following me around. But also then I saw sort of encroaching tech components to it. Like there, there did appear to be a sort of geolocation-based you know, effort to track my cell phone location, which was successful. And so, you know, I did a number of years of reporting on the human surveillance sector and the firms that provide basically private espionage and, you know, actors, operatives who play uh, characters with false identities working for front companies. And this is all spy versus spy stuff that sounds unbelievable, but is true. It's very true. And, you know, this isn't just in my reporting. This is, you know, uh, something that's been sort of cross-confirmed in courtrooms and in, in many different outlets. And and that obviously at The New Yorker, we only put out when we really literally found sort of the contracts and the identities of the people involved and got everyone to admit, essentially. And what I found in doing that reporting was, you know, actually the, the tech piece of this is the outer edge. Uh, you know, people who, who follow this world uh, will not find that to be a revelatory statement. And that the connectivity between the tech being used to surveil and the violence around the world was a matter of increasing urgency. You know, we saw around Jamal Khashoggi's death, uh, you know, people getting surveilled using this Pegasus software that you mentioned. Um, we've seen it in El Salvador. We've seen it in Mexico, you know, that journalists wind up hurt, dissidents wind up hurt um, or even dead. And then people around them have this kind of spyware on their phones. And so I became very intrigued by the way in which this industry is accelerating. It's now a $12 billion spyware industry, you know, maybe more. It's hard to track because in addition to the sort of declared companies doing this work, there's a lot of sort of gray actors who are in a quasi-legal space who are operating out of regulation havens, even just individual rogue hackers who can offer these kinds of services. And what I learned digging into it is, you know, it's a flourishing industry. There's very little regulation. A whole community of great reporters has done incredibly important work documenting out some of these abuses around the world, the way in which this technology can be misused, the way in which there is not regulation. And I thought that it made sense to start diving deep with sort of the, the main poster child of this industry, which is this company, NSO Group, that makes Pegasus. And also with the other players in what has increasingly become an international war over this kind of technology. Because companies like NSO Group and rogue hackers who do this kind of phone cracking work, and we should talk about you know what the technology does and how it can access your phone, are constantly in a game of cat and mouse with platform holders, you know, Facebook, Apple, et cetera, with governments who are now struggling with both how do we protect ourselves and also how do we use this kind of tech as a tool in our diplomacy, right? Like one of the things that um, the Times first reported that that is then elaborated on in this latest story that I've, I've done is that the CIA helped to underwrite the purchase of Pegasus software by Djibouti you know, military ally of the United States. And in this piece, we disclose that that same technology was then used in Djibouti to hack the prime minister 
and other senior officials. So you see how it's, it is enmeshed in geopolitics and also with chaotic results. Um, I'm always fascinated and then confused whenever I read any kind of cyber security story because it is so it's 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 i can't see it right i literally can't verify any of this myself very often it's the same thing with any kind of national security reporting maybe there's a couple on the record sources uh, a lot of it you're relying on the the, the hopefully that the reporter knows what they're talking about it is talking mm -hmm. to good faith sources and isn't being steered periodically that goes wrong and then you end up with judith miller and, and wmds the new york times what's fascinating about your story is You've got uh, in the in the, a lot of this deals with a, a lawsuits that Facebook, uh, which owns WhatsApp, and then Apple are, are bringing against NSO, uh, this Israeli company, and then you have tons of access from NSO itself. The one of the founders is bringing you into his apartment in Israel and bringing you into the company. You're interviewing plenty of people on the record. NSO is not hiding in the shadows, at least not in your story. What? What is what's their point of view in terms of what they're selling and why what they're doing is perfectly okay? I, I'm glad you highlighted that because I did think one important aspect of what I could do this with this reporting, which was a culmination, you know, the, the decision that I talked about to pursue the kind of high tech cyber end of the surveillance industry was years ago. And then, you know, I wrote about NSO Group in a, a book I wrote, Catch and Kill. I, I sort of stayed on this beat. And this is sort of the culmination of several years during which my feeling was part of what I could contribute to the conversation, building on this incredible reporting by, by a, a whole community of, of journalists on this, was to bring it out of the shadows a little bit. And there's this sort of conversation around my work sometimes that I see out there that's like, why, why did they talk to him again? <laughs> you know, And I think in NSO's case, it's not a mistake to talk. You know, This is a company that has been accused of complicity in murder around the world. And, you know, their technology has showed up on these phones in these cases where dissidents and activists and journalists wind up dead. And I think that it is telling that they crave legitimacy enough that they decided to engage, that they decided to let, you know, a, a tough investigative reporter into their midst, you know, and to see the technology and to make arguments in favor of it. Now, I take all those arguments with a grain of salt. I know when I'm being given a dog and pony show. It's not my first rodeo. I know the game is, you know, they have an objective here. But I do think, as you kind of highlight in the question, the fact that they are talking is significant. And the argument they make at its core, I think, you know, is worth a look at, which is they don't say our tools are not dangerous. They say we're an arms dealer and we are working in an underregulated space, you know, it doesn't have the same structure of treaties and international law that, say, chemical weapons have around them. And, you know, there's a, a lot of specifics that they dispute, you know, where in this piece, we then kind of knock down their, their factual arguments. And we have former employees saying, well, actually, not so fast. Uh, you know, they, they argue strenuously that they have blinders on and they very, they know very little about what their customers, these countries that buy the technology are doing with the technology. But they say we sell the countries and the intended use of this is to deter crime and terrorism. That is the point of this software we've made. Could it be abused? Sure. But that's the intent of what we're doing. That's right. That that's sort of the existential debate. You know, this, so this is just to recap, you know, it's technology that can turn on your camera 
without your knowing. It can turn on your microphone and listen in on a secret meeting. It can image your entire hard drive. And you don't need to click on a dodgy link for any of this to happen. It can show up. And it, it varies. Up. You know, this this malware can be installed through a, a click. Um, and sometimes that's the low-hanging fruit, and sometimes they use that approach. And you'll you'll get, you know, phishing text messages, for instance, that have some kind of a link. And they appear to come from a known contact in your phone. You know, it's from the bank. It's from the government and some, you know, uh, social security service. And so you click through. And then it boots this uh, software onto your phone. Or, as you point out, it can be a zero-click exploit where they're just doing it through, say, a missed call on WhatsApp. That's that's one exploit that we go, go deep on in this piece. Um, and, you know, the, the technology is incredibly powerful, and it can completely strip mine your phone for any content, all of your communications, all of your photos. And it is sold to government-affiliated law enforcement and intelligence agencies. This is the claim from NSO Group. And I did not uncover any evidence to the contrary that they only sell to governments. Uh, But, you know, it's worth noting as we get into this existential debate of is it mainly for law enforcement or is it mainly abused, that another argument NSO makes not incorrectly is we're not the only bad actors in this space. This is technology that is increasingly cheap and accessible. It's everywhere. There's all kinds of rogue actors offering it. And I don't mean to buy into the argument that NSO is, you know, uh, putting up enough safeguards or, you know, should be embraced as a legitimate actor. But I think it is inarguably the case that they are not the only actors we have to worry about here. Uh, And that actually, in some ways, you know, while while NSO is, is worthy of the attention because it remains something of a market leader, it is the quieter actors in this space that we should be, you know, certainly equally frightened about. Um, but yes, their argument is that for their part, they're selling to governments and those governments are using it for law enforcement purposes. And, you know, they swear up and down that they've learned from every abuse and that their aim is to shut down the account uh, of any any government that is misusing it. Is is there a is there a legitimate claim that that arms dealer sounds bad because it's selling arms, um, uh, you know, but someone has to make weapons that are used by by countries and police forces, and some of those we support. And maybe a lot of people who listen to this podcast are unnerved by drones dropping bombs. On the other hand, they're probably supportive of the fact that Turkish-made drones are being used by the Ukraine military against Russia. Um, here, I'm going to make a devil's advocate argument. It seems like it'd be irresponsible not to use this stuff if you were a government trying to protect your citizens. And yes, you could use it for nefarious ends, but to say we simply just don't want to touch this stuff seems seems head in the sand. Well, I think it is about the way in which it's used, against whom it's used, and if you are a vendor of this technology, to whom it's being sold, and what is the respect for rule of law and human rights in that country. And, you know, there is this argument that is presented by NSO, and I also talk, talk to people at other companies in this piece and talk about the wider industry. That's, you know, very sort of whitewashed. You know, we sell to Western democracies who don't have a ton of human rights problems. And like, that's the main line of the business. And, and all of this controversy and criticism about dead activists is a sidebar. But then you talk to observers of the industry. You talk to former employees of these country companies. 
um, you know, including ones who sort of know the sales conversations and activities and the economics underlying all of this. And what emerges, and I think this is, you know, one of the substantive new things in this piece, is that actually the bread and butter for many of these companies is the abusive regimes, you know, that Saudi Arabia and other countries like Saudi Arabia will pay astronomically more, you know, their estimates from former employees than Western European democracies. That they've got two sets of prices, basically. There's one for, got two for sets the of UK and one for the Saudis, and the Saudi one is 5x. Exactly, and that you, that essentially to be a sustainable player in this space, need to sell to countries that you reasonably know are going to be abusive. That is the kind of counter-argument, the outside critique. Um, and NSO obviously disputes that. Other companies in this space could dispute that. But there's this interesting split in the industry emerging, Peter, where you have companies that see the blowback NSO has gotten and are trying to respond in terms of offering a business model that's less controversy-laden. So, you know, we talk about this group Paragon that is sort of trying to position itself to get American law enforcement business mm-hmm. by being, you know, more palatable on the human rights side. And the argument they make is, you know, we our technology is more narrowly focused. We focus on just cracking the end-to-end encryption of your messaging platform, you know, Signal, for instance, not on cracking the whole phone. Uh, we're only going to sell to a very kind of curated smaller list of less abusive countries. It is a general argument for sure that NSO Group makes that they empower platform holders to better resist entrees from governments to create generalized backdoors. And that is, you know, it's an interesting argument. You know, I, I think that it doesn't fully account for the fact that the widespread access to this te- privatized technology, you know, it is just as much, I think, uh, a threat and a source of invasions of privacy as this backdoor conversation. And and I don't know that the flourishing of companies like NSO Group does get companies like Apple off the hook from that pressure in those conversations. So you write this piece that, that really details all the effort that NSO and similar groups are putting into this. Uh, again, Facebook slash WhatsApp gives you tons of access about how they're fighting it, which it's interesting that they are the good guys in this fight. What is to be done? You said earlier there's no rules around this like there are on chemical warfare. There's plenty of people who ignore rules that are, you know, Geneva Convention and all kinds of uh, of rules around what's what, what states can and can't do. In addition to exposing this, what, what did you want to come out of this piece? What 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 do you think is a, a meaningful and helpful resolution here? Maybe resolution is the wrong word. What is to be done? Well, my hope would be that people sort of see this debate about whether these companies and this technology writ large should be treated in the way that dangerous weapons are treated. And they see that right now there is enough of a void of regulation that the bulwark against this is private platform holders, you know, who who often on their own don't have the best track record of defending human rights and, and privacy. You know, there are tracks of this piece that are kind of kinetic cyber battles where you have 
WhatsApp engineers on their security team, you know, popping out from behind pieces of digital cover and like sniping with these NSO engineers. And the NSO um, guys you know, they literally, literally rickroll them at one point as a they rickroll them. There's a kind of a hilarious uh, New Yorker parenthetical that's like, you know, so and so could not recall rickrolling WhatsApp. <laughs> um, and, and you know, it's all very Mr. Robot, but it, it is actually, I think, also a terrifying reality that the the fate of our privacy, our basic ability to treat our communications and our phones as a private space. It is in the hands of these kind of incremental defenses by Apple's security team and WhatsApp's security team. And, and, you know, that I think should be troubling to all of us, but especially the stakes are elevated when you're dealing with journalists, when you're dealing with dissidents, when you're dealing with people who are at real risk when their privacy is compromised. So my hope would be that similar to the Biden administration saying, you know, we're going to do more, we're going to try to ban the government for purchasing this thing. The FBI had previously purchased NSO's technology to test it. Um, I report in this piece that a number of government agencies in, inside the Pentagon, inside DOJ, um, a number of offices do buy private spyware. I hope that people see in this piece that there's some documentation of ostensibly safer Western democracies abusing this technology. We talk about a case in Spain, uh, a very widespread hacking of, of opposition political voices. And I, I hope that there is a conversation about more robust kind of regulation and limitation of the use of the technology in the same way we have with only moderate success, but at least there is some structure there with certain kinds of weapons. Let's make this servicey for a second. Uh, straightforward advice for normal people who are not high profile journalists or activists who are still concerned about the fact that someone could crack their phone if they wanted to. Should they just accept that that's the case uh, and there's not a lot to do about it? Or are there practical steps they can take? So uh, this was obviously one of the questions that I asked. Uh, one of the uh, you know basic things, I, I'll be insulting uh, all of us here, but I'll say it anyway, is just you know keep everything updated because the whole economy of these kinds of exploits revolves around what's called zero-day exploits. You're, you know... You guys are, are a tech uh, outlet. You'll your listeners will be very familiar, but you know the, this is about exploiting the current state of the software. And if you've got a zero day exploit, meaning one that has not yet been identified or patched by a platform holder, that is an incredibly valuable thing. And that is you know the the kind of uh, ideal, the platonic ideal of what these companies, these hacking firms, and their engineers are searching for all the time. And therefore, you know you want to make sure that the moment anything is patched, you've got that patch in place so that you really are only dealing with those those zero-day things that are the most elusive and sophisticated. And by the way, you, 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 you point out in the piece, I think at one point when WhatsApp is updating their software, they don't say, we're updating this because it's being cracked by Israeli uh, uh, spy right. kids. Uh, we're, we're, they give it some anodyne explanation, but just go ahead and do the update whenever they offer it. Well, what's interesting is, yes, that go ahead and do the update. What's interesting about that particular anecdote is they did that, you know, not, I think, in any effort to be deceptive to users, because they did ultimately have to disclose that there had been this giant breach and, and sort of deal with the consequences and engage with the victims. Because at the time, in that moment, they were still in that cat and mouse game with the interlopers in their systems. So there's this interesting question that emerges in cyber defense issues where you have to decide when you identify 
of vulnerability that is being exploited. How quickly do you actually patch that up versus studying what's happening? So you make sure you're more thoroughly addressing it and maybe using that time while the hackers are in your system to, to identify where it's coming from. So part of the, the drama of a couple of these hacking episodes that I describe at, at WhatsApp, at Apple, you know, these are very secretive security teams, but I was able to get people on the record within all of them. And part of what they describe is this sort of philosophical dilemma of how quickly do you roll out the patch versus making sure it's the best patch it can be and doing kind of detective work. Um, so it's an interesting sidebar. But yes, re reboot your phone uh, is the other thing that I would advise. Keep it updated, but also every day, at least once a day, just shut the thing down and turn it back on because survivability through a reboot is also an elusive technological trait. And most of the spyware suites we're talking about do not include that as a feature. And as, at least as of a few weeks ago, NSO was telling me that Pegasus does not include survivability as a feature. So they can reinfect you, but you can kill the infection with a reboot. You are a high profile journalist who does a lot of uh, sensitive reporting. Has this changed the way you do your job? Are you more inclined to use certain kinds of tech or maybe not use tech at all and do a lot more pen and paper stuff? Are there conversations that you used to have on the phone that you no longer do or texts or emails? Well, for some time, I think particularly when I work with government whistleblowers, right, who have, might have the full force of the resources of you know, the U.S. government surveillance apparatus uh, focused on them. You know, I have sought to live up to best practices in this area, which is uh, really a, a giant pain in the ass and not sustainable for, for most broader communications. But if you're really working with a super sensitive source, you know, I think what you want to do is you want to go in cash and purchase a Wi-Fi hotspot that's not tied to you in any way. And then use that Wi-Fi hotspot to connect with, you know, the most basic iPod possible that only has an encrypted messaging app on it. App on it. And, you know, I think opinions vary among security uh, experts, but there are these firms like Paragon that are specifically focused on cracking um, Signal, for instance. So, you know, I use Signal a fair amount in my communications, but for the ultra-sensitive things, I have certainly had people recommend Threema or Wicker, you know, maybe some of these platforms won't be familiar to all your listeners, but there are sort of more obscure ones that therefore are less a target of a lot of resources by a lot of actors in terms of the cracking efforts. And then, you know, you only communicate through that burner with that kind of a setup. And that's the best you can do. But I, I do think the reality is and this is one of the things that dawned on me doing this reporting. And, and as you point out, not just through the underlying reporting, but through sort of my own life as someone who is a little bit a, a target for these kinds of things, is that we are living in a post-privacy age in many ways technologically. And you can use all the best practices in the world. And I'm very you know grateful that my sources have you know stayed safe. Uh, and it's an important part of my job to continue to work to secure that. But the reality is our phones are no longer private if someone wants to spend enough resources to crack them. And there is always that possibility, even with the kind of elaborate setup that I just talked about, that, you know, you will be listened in on. 
So that's a tricky thing. And yes, there's a role for in-person conversations. Um, yes, there's a role for longhand stuff, but none of it is totally fail-safe. It never has been. It's just harder than it ever is. And I think all you can do is make your best faith effort all the time. Yeah, my approach to this has generally been if someone really wants to get to my stuff, they can and will. And not yeah, that I'm totally. being sloppy about it. But on the other hand, I shouldn't delude myself into thinking that there's there's a some sort of black box that any of this could go into. And that, frankly, right. that most people don't care about what I'm doing. And that, by yeah, the way, I, I comfort myself with that, too. You know, it's I, I don't want to overstate the case. Like, I have had people follow me around a little. I don't think that means that you know, I am as in the crosshairs as like any journalist in, you know, Pakistan mm -hmm. or Russia or you know, any any of the kind of states where journalists wind up dead all the time. And, you know, I, I think by and large, my activities are, are like boring enough that they're not going to have the theoretical massive weight of government resources brought to bear to try to get into my stuff. Like we said, when I when I met you the first time you were an MSNBC talk show host, and famously, you left NBC with what became the Weinstein story and brought that to mm -hmm. The New Yorker. But I'm curious, did you imagine this was going to be your career or this part of your career um, not that long ago? I mean, when did you leave MSNBC or NBC period? Uh, 20, I left NBC. Uh, you know, I, was, I did the, the daily MSNBC thing. And then I was a, a kind of more Today Show and Nightly News centric uh, network correspondent. I left the company writ large in 2017. There's a lot of people who do some version of what I do or you do, and their their whole aspiration is to be on TV and to have a nightly talk yeah. show or, or, or show up periodically. Was that your aim? When did you decide that was your goal, and when did you decide, I don't want to do this anymore? I think I always wanted to tell stories that were illuminating about true things, and I found in doing daily news anchoring, which is a discipline I really respect, it's very kind of old school. And I think, you know, we're obviously in a kind of an existential moment in terms of figuring out the business model around that, the audience for that, what's the effect of streaming, there's all this tumult. But it, I, I kind of, even a few years ago, felt these questions about what that medium can or should be and how you can use a public platform most powerfully to tell stories that go a little deeper and are a little less ephemeral. And, you know, even by the end of the, the lifespan of that MSNBC show, I, I was really fortunate to have a great team of producers around it. And, you know, we were doing like 20 minute taped investigative pieces about, you know, overprescription at VA hospitals and, you know, sexual assault on college campuses and sort of things that were off the news. And, you know, I, I valued the part of it that was about like standing in front of a camera with no prompter and no return and like being in Paris after the Charlie Hebdo shootings and just like anchoring around the clock. And that that breaking news coverage when you're in the thick of a situation like that will always have a place. Um, and, you know, CNN does it great. They have a lot of resources around the world. And I, I think there will always be business models that coalesce around that. But you, the problem with the 24-hour cable news cycle, and I think this is probably the frustration of a lot of my colleagues in, in the business who, who do that kind of anchoring, is very often in between those moments, you are, uh, you know, you're vamping. You're repeating the same headline over and over again. And it's not, it's not the fault of 
the producers, the content creators, the anchors. It it is about the business model, right? It's structural business model that yes, it's structural and it's economic and it and it's a direct uh, you know descendant of um, the kind of we're always under a breaking banner because that's what's going to get viewers. You know Nielsen box uh, extrapolation. It it is. Uh, the kind of thing that leads to, for instance, me in the middle of the day, like sitting in a flight simulator with Lester Holt, you know, pretending to find the Malaysian flight that was missing like a month and a half after the the plane was gone and there was no new information on the story. Uh, you know, we just kept like hitting that headline and hitting that headline. And and that part of the the job, I think, is frustrating for most people involved in it. And in a world where it is less about sort of passive linear consumption and more, uh, you know, a space in which people have options and they're seeking destination viewing for content. It felt old fashioned. So, so I think through those experiences, I developed a love of stuff that goes a little deeper and has a little more staying power. Hopefully, if we if we do all do our jobs right, and it made it felt like an offshoot of the same kind of instinct to tell stories that brought me there in the first place. To continue to do it in this way, where I'm doing you know long form stuff for HBO uh, and for the New Yorker, and and sometimes uh, in a you know in a cross pollinating way, where I'm shooting stuff that I'm reporting for print. So speaking of impact, we're going to come up on five years uh, past the your initial Weinstein reporting, uh, fall of of twenty fall of twenty seventeen, right? How do you think about sort of what those stories kicked off? There was obviously a series then of high profile men acting badly who were found out and, and stories were written about them. You wrote a bunch of them um, and, and people were kicked out. Um, some of those, some of the legal repercussions are still going on. Did you think there would be more of those? Did you think we'd be sort of where we're at now where you still continue to hear about someone getting in trouble for behaving inappropriately, but now there's a debate about whether that's gone too far. Are you surprised there aren't more of these? Do you think there'd be less? Just wondering, now you've got a little bit of distance now to, to sort of assess what impact that initial reporting made. As you can imagine, I get that question with some frequency. And I, I always Sorry. Just, no, no, not. Oh my God, it's not a put down. It's, it's a, I get the question for a reason from, from good journalists. It's an important thing that, that happened and is still playing out in the world culturally. I just feel very distant from it. And I, and I think appropriately so, right? Because... There were activists around this issue who were there before that wave of reporting you're talking about, right? People like Tarana Burke, who coined the, the phrase Me Too and is involved in all of this grassroots, uh, you know, mobilizing of people and, you know, focus on sort of care for survivors and legislation and policy around it. And and then there's a very separate conversation that's around journalism. And good journalism can spur good policymaking and good activism. And I think we saw some of that here, right? You know, we saw the disclosure of facts about individuals who were committing uh, crimes, sometimes violent crimes. We saw the disclosure of facts about how institutions, including corporate ones, were dealing with those acts and in some cases covering them up. I think there was a really meaningful and continues to be a really meaningful policy debate, um, particularly in state legislatures around how to rein in that kind of a cover-up culture, what the legal guardrails are around non-disclosure agreements attached to, to these kinds of cases. Um, there's been real headway. The kind of broader 
follow-on cultural movement, this reckoning not just with the kinds of violent crimes that the branch of my reporting you're talking about focused on, uh, but with sort of complicated um, you know, gray areas, uh, which are overdue needed conversations, right? Like there, there were things that were considered gray areas that maybe shouldn't have been. And I'm very grateful, you know, just as a person in the world and a person who loves women and might have daughters someday, you know, and who cares about, you know, male survivors of sexual violence. I'm very grateful for that conversation about, you know, trying to engender greater sort of respect for people's autonomy and bodies and so forth. But that wasn't really baked into the work itself, right? That the work may have played a contributing role in catalyzing some of that, but that doesn't mean that I am part of the activism, part of the conversation about those nuances. And I think it's actually quite appropriate that I feel very separate from it, that I sort of did very narrowly focused, very clinical, fact-driven unearthing of some of the sort of worst cases. And, you know, for me, in part, I've, I've written a lot about how it was important that not just me, but a number of reporters who did good work on that front were willing to confront these issues in a way that didn't discriminate against them because they were about sexual violence, right? We were reporting on them like we would any other crime. And in a way that sort of for anyone coming at this reporting personal, right? Because we've all sort of known people or cared about people who have been affected by this. And it was bringing something that was less out into the open, out into the open. But in another sense, it was also for me, you know, just me being a reporter looking for a, a scoop and wanting to be factual and, and wanting to expose bad crimes, right? And I think the key was that we didn't discriminate against these ones because they were different. So, so yes, there was a specialized cultural movement that followed on, and that's important. But there is an important sense also in which this was sort of just as the you know abuses of spyware technology are are important to me on a human rights basis. There was a big juicy story, and you went out and got it. Yeah, yeah, and and if, you know, uh, it's been much excavated. All the kind of personal narratives around that for many of the reporters there. And that's that's all fine and good, but but it's also important to to not lose sight of that basic fact. Like these were just crimes that would have been viewed as crimes in any era, you know, absent even any movement. And uh, I am proud of any extent to which they prompted follow-on activism that has shaped the culture in some positive way. But it's but that you know I can't take credit for that or claim involvement in that. You are a very public figure, public enough that the New York Times spent, uh, uh, Ben Smith trained his sights on you in a 2020 column and, and critiqued your reporting. Um, did any of that scrutiny and or criticism change the way you do your work? And and to sum it up, basically, Ben said, you know, you, his essential version was, you know, you're, you're creating these narratives and you're omitting some details that make the narratives um, uh, more complicated. Did, did that, any of that stick with you and, and, and resonate in any way? Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously, in that case, there were no inaccuracies identified, you know, the New Yorker didn't correct anything and responded saying like, this work is all accurate. That work is incredibly nuanced. I am a reporter who runs towards complication and doesn't sand edges off. Um, I would, you know, without getting into any, there have been a lot of individual op-eds that, you know, came at me over the years. And without getting into any specific one, I think that you know, I have come to understand that it is an occupational hazard of this job that 
you piss off a lot of people when you do confronting investigative reporting. And I see that in the, the works and careers of every investigative reporter that I admire. And it's not easy when you're in it. And, you know, even around this, uh, this last piece about Pegasus and spyware, you know, I, I've been vilified in the Spanish press, right? Because it, it touches a third rail. There's this Catalan separatist movement. And, you know, they say, well, the Spanish government was forced to admit what I, what I reported. And, you know, the debate amongst... The context here is the lead of your story starts with Catalan separatists. Right, this this massive hacking campaign, right. And it's a good example because, you know, that's a piece that's incredibly rigorous. And, you know, amongst reporters, including the kind of day-to-day reporters for wire services and, and newspapers who do this work on this beat, who I admire most... It's been a piece that's been sort of celebrated for its rigor, right? And the Washington Post did a, an editorial board comment sort of quoting it and saying, we need to do something about this policy-wise. So in our community, it's greeted that way. But there is very often, you know, this cost of like, to if you're not pissing someone off, I think you're not doing your job. And so they're incredibly contentious. And in this case, you know, th- there is a, a contingent in Spain that really feels, yes, we had to admit to this. And yes, there's now this political scandal over whether it was legal. But these are fundamentally criminals, these secessionists. And like, how could you describe the abuses of their rights in this way? And and so those attacks are, I'm kind of giving uh, a charitable rendering of, of what that argument is on their part. How they manifest is these incredibly below the belt, you know, personal ad hominem things. There's like a nexus of, you know, people who um, are invested in sort of all of the kind of celebrity family stuff around me. And they, they pull all that stuff up. So, so I get this full range of attacks around like most of the significant pieces that I've gotten, that I put out. And my job as a reporter is to identify in any of that, any legitimate critiques, any opportunity to learn, you know, can I, can I take anything from this and make the re- reporting even stronger, even better, even more rigorous? Um, but also to to learn when to understand when the powerful interests, either individuals or institutions that I have run afoul of, are laundering uh, ad hominem attacks. And, you know, every single time there's a component where some of that makes it into the press. And, you know, mostly I think people are sort of good faith enough to, you know, put that in its context or not, you know, uh, uh, disseminate that further. But it does happen all the time that that emerges. And I think, you know, what I'm grateful for in it is there is such a strong structure of rigorous editing, rigorous fact checking. There's such a community of people that make sure this work is insulated that when those broadsides come, you know, every, just about every piece, there's been sort of a laundering of some kind of a dossier of like, here's, here's an ad hominem attack we can do. And the strength of the fact checking process does mean that the work itself is pretty insulated in the end. So I'm grateful for that. So you, the work you do is difficult. There's people opposing you while you do it. When the work comes out, you're going to get criticism for that. And it's already to go, you know what? I think my next piece should be a travel piece where I go to this <laughs> lovely island. And maybe David right. Remnick will pay for that. And if not, maybe someone else in Condé Nast are, will, are you saying will send me somewhere. You don't, you don't have many fond memories of my 2014 W Magazine cover story about Miley Cyrus, which I missed required it. extensive I missed research it. going to Miley Cyrus concerts. Well, how could I you? I missed it. Do you, but do you ever say, like, I'd like to, I'd like to tap out for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, do something and, a little lighter. Do, yeah. Yeah, you know, I... I I think that there are plenty of stories to tell that are important and illuminating or even just fun 
that are, you know, worth all of our while. And, you know, one of the, the pleasures of being an investigative reporter and the challenges is it's not as narrowly beat focused as, you know, many of the reporters I admire are. You have to go deep. And on a piece like this, that's highly technical, you have to spend like, you know, in this case, a couple of years, you know, more than two years, like really immersing yourself. But I'm with you, like, bring on the travelogue, <laughs> like, you know, bring on another Miley profile. Um, I don't, you know, what should we, should we like team up on something fun that'll bring us to Listen, I'll just, I'll just take a finder's people. fee for, for getting you this next writing gig. So, uh, people, okay, people de- listen, deal. we'll set you up. Um, last question. If I, I get a vacation a, out of it, I'm in. <laughs> I'm a, uh, I'm a love it or leave it enthusiast. So I know that you are a video game enthusiast. You and John love it, play a lot of video games. What's, what's your game of choice right now? I kind of, you know, I brought John Lovett around to video games, uh, though, though, you know, he, he likes to claim otherwise. Um, I am in the midst of Elden Ring. I'm in the, the earliest phases where I'm still sort of annoying friends that I'm uh, co-oping with by not really understanding the systems. There's always a learning curve with FromSoft games. Uh, I'm a big, you know, Bloodborne, Dark Souls fan. I think they're like cool works of art aside from anything else. Elden Ring I'm, you know, sounds like one of those. So I frame it in that way. <laughs> Elden Ring sounds like one of those games that I can't just casually drop into that I have to devote many, many hours uh, to playing. So I think that's not for me. It, it is not a casual drop-in game. I mean, do you do like a little Mario Kart or Smash Brothers here and there? I enjoy those start things. Light? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, look, when we find our, our vacation beat, uh, we'll, we'll like bring a Nintendo Switch and do Mario Kart. Sold. I'm in. Running Pharaoh. All right. Good. Thanks for your time. This was fun. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to Ronan Farrow. Thanks again to Travis Jelani. Thanks again to our sponsors. We love sponsors. Sometimes it sounds like we don't love sponsors, but we love our sponsors. Sponsors are great. You guys are great too. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a smart water alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.